why don't you introduce yourself, guest? Hey, so I'm Dominic Wellington, and I work for Moogsoft. Mm. Now, now before before I I don't I don't have you here necessarily to talk about Moogsoft, but what what is that company? I mean, it's got a funny name, so it sort of begs the question: what what Moogs are you softing? <laughs> That's a fair question. So if you're familiar with Netcool uh, from back in the day, uh, or Micromuse and Riversoft, which is what that technology was called before IBM bought it up, uh, then it's basically the new generation of that from the same team, mm. the same founders that are behind that. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, so Netcool was a manager of managers back in the day, a mom, uh, and it let you write rules about how the different bits of your infrastructure related to each other. So that when something went wrong, you could figure that out. Mm. Um, that worked fine back then. Uh, these days, infrastructure is a bit more complex. So we do it with uh, AI and machine learning and big data and a few more buzzwords just to keep up with the kids. Yeah, yeah. But bottom line, you don't have to write as many rules and we can deal with changes. That's right. Well, you know, there's there's uh, there's several things I was thinking we could discuss, but uh, one of them, we'll see if we get to it. One of the ones that's always fun with with someone like yourself and myself is to uh, ponder the question, like why can't the big four get their shit together? But maybe we'll get back to that and and later on. Uh, but the first one, like like you you were don't tell uh, me you're finally writing your book. Some WTF. <laughs> That's right. That would be fun. I should make a whole series one day. You know, as as I'm fond of every now and then saying, when I go to the airport, I drive by this billboard that tells me the current amount of money you could win from the lottery, and I feel like I feel like that is my publishing venture capital just waiting to happen. Of course, of course, as any good threat on Hacker News would tell you, the first thing you got to do is buy a ticket to the lottery, which I've failed to do thus far. But, you know, that's, that's my, my poor life choices, as people would say. But anyhow, um, so, so, I mean, you sort of hit on something that, that you've written a lot about that I think would it'd be fun to discuss. I got, I got, uh, I got all riled up this morning. There was this piece in, uh, in The Guardian, which, which uh, I don't know, maybe unsurprisingly, but like is one of the better sources of sort of like the culture of tech. And, and you know, I don't know if, uh, if in your, uh, your magazines and newspapers over, over there, you have sort of coverage of how the so-called tech companies are destroying our civilization one one bit at a time each day. But it was basically that article. And then all of a sudden, he's talking about the Unabomber. And I was just like, what the fuck? How did this story go off the rails? And then, you know, you go to the bottom. And of course, he's just published a book or two, or he's reviewing a book about, you know, um, I don't know what the word nowadays is, radical deviant uh, white dudes who mess up society or something like that. Uh, so I guess that makes sense for that framing. But uh, let me try to, speaking of going off the rails, bring this back here. But but a lot of the things that, that, that you've, you know, written about and talked about are sort of like, what's the effect of all this, this automation and AI and ML stuff on humanity, more or less the workplace uh, of, of humanity. But I thought sort of like, you know, the, uh, the always have an interesting take on like the ethics, as I would pose it of, of that. And um, I mean, to start off with, I think, I think I forget what the exact way you put it is, but one of the interesting things, and this is always a good framing for exploring a uh, unknown issue is like, what if the situation is, and, and, I'll just say AI and we can debate if that's actually a thing versus machine learning or whatever, not debate, but discuss later on. But what what if AI turns out to be true, but it's not really true in this sci-fi way. It's just true in, in like a, a, an entirely different way that like we're not really predicting. Like, and then analogously, like I would think, um, I mean, I was thinking electricity, but it's sort of, it's sort of like, uh, I always like these tumblers that are like, uh, there's one that I think phrases it well called like forgotten tomorrows. And it's sort of like people were hoping we would have flying cars and all of oh, this. Oh, I stuff. love that one. Yeah, yeah. And, and similarly, I think, I think you have some charting out of like, what if AI is extremely successful, but really boring <laughs> in, in, in what it does? And so, <laughs> yeah. so along those lines, I mean, what, what, uh, uh, I don't know, like, like, like what are, the very successful but practical ways that that AI might actually pan out, and then the kind of like hmm, sort of like choices that that we would hope to make about it. Sure. So that's a pretty broad question. So I'll try to uh, to address that without going off the rails, as you say. 
Uh, I mean, the the big thing there is what does AI mean uh, to the whole world and everything and all of our human interactions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and I live in Italy. We just had an election over the weekend. Uh, and uh, just to keep up with all of the other cool kids, uh, it seems our election was also possibly influenced by uh, Russian bots and uh, all sorts of things like that. And so there's all this conversation about what's the, the societal impact of all of this uh, connectivity and social networks and whatnot, especially when you add automation uh, into that mix. And I think that's way too big a conversation to have. Uh, but one of the things that, uh, that I've been writing about a lot is that these, um, these uh, AI and learning systems that we have, they tend to fall down a lot on weird edge cases. And I literally just wrote a tweet just while uh, I was waiting to get on the phone with you. And that's basically a definition of what humans do is weird edge cases. If you, <laughs> right, if you try right. to apply, exactly, if you try to apply categorization to that, you end up with all sorts of weird stuff. So the tweet I shared was this article about weird ways in which image recognition can go wrong. If an image recognition system is looking for sheep, what it learns is, a whole bunch of averages around that. So it sees little fuzzy patches around a bunch of green. It learns over time there's a good chance those are sheep, so it starts flagging those are sheep. But if you pick up the sheep, then it flags it as a dog. And if you have the sheep in an indoor setting, it flags it as a cow. Uh, and the Microsoft oh, Azure right. image classifier, for some reason, is obsessed with the giraffes because it got given a, a set of training data that featured a whole bunch of giraffes. So you get these very weird things. And so that that's the sort of problem that you have in the real world. So what we do at Moogsoft is we apply these techniques, but in a much more constrained data set of IT. And IT is great for this stuff because we don't have that problem of gathering data and making sure that we have enough data and the data representative and whatnot. Because IT infrastructure is generating data for us all the time huge volumes of it, which is part of the problem. That's why you need something like Mobisoft. Uh, and all of those data are already nicely pre-classified for us. Uh, so the, the food is already semi-chewed <laughs> before we get to it. So it makes life much, much easier then to be able to go and look for patterns in those data. And there's yet- also a lot less responsibility. I mean, there's this interesting conversation uh, going on about the ethics of building these uh, machine learning systems. So there was a famous case of someone who built an algorithm that claimed to be able to detect uh, somebody's sexual orientation or the very well-documented failure modes of facial recognition systems when they're looking at someone who's not uh, white Caucasian. Uh, so there's, um, there's an ethical question there about, you know, should you even be doing certain things and uh, what uh, should you be doing to make sure that you don't inadvertently cause harm while you're developing such a system? And if you're dealing with IT monitoring data, uh, you, <laughs> you don't have to deal with all of these uh, naughty ethical questions. You can focus just purely on the science and the engineering of it. That's right. Yeah, no, and 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 to that end, I mean, I mean, one one area to start with, and uh, I don't know, I, I don't know how like machine learning works. I understand there's something called a cluster involved, and and like you know, to some extent, I I I understand the output comes of it the output of it right and uh you know i i think i always think like photo recognition is the um easiest way to get an understanding of what it does like i mean i guess we've had a ton of it with like search and things like that over the years but i think that's a little to my mind it's a little more hidden like what kind of ml stuff is going on there but you know you upload all your photos to google photo and suddenly it starts clustering things together uh and and it's usually pretty good like it does the obvious simple things like this past weekend, <laughs> which doesn't require anything. I mean, you could just do that with a, a good Excel macro, so to speak. But there are other things that it'll do uh, that look like, uh, again, like clustering things together, which is interesting. So um, so there's that. But like how I mean, how would you describe like what ML actually machine learning actually does? Not, not, I'm wrong. Not what it does, but how it works, because I think um and the reason I'm asking this is I think a lot of those ethical questions that people would have, discussions of them often skip over how the thing works. And and I always feel like 
in in a in a ethical discussion about technology, you have to understand first how it works, so you know who and what to blame <laughs> when when things go wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so like like how how does it how does it work? No, so that's a very fair question, and unfortunately, it doesn't have an easy answer because. Most of these uh, these systems use different mechanisms. I mean, there's one open source library that I'm aware of that claims 300 different algorithms. And, you know, there's some definition foo going on there. It's uh, questionable whether it's actually 300 unique distinct things. Uh, but, you know, it's 300 that are sufficiently different that uh, they'd be used in different ways. And it's a field that's also moving uh, pretty fast. I mean, we're a tiny fish uh, in the sea compared to, you know, the Googles of this world with TensorFlow and whatnot. Uh, but we're still throwing out a good few patents every single quarter. Um, and there are lots of people that are doing that. It's a field that does not stand still uh, at all. So it's, it's really hard to say. And someone who's doing uh, one type of, say, facial recognition algorithm is probably looking at a very different uh, sets of techniques uh, than what we're doing. For instance, all of the, the GPU uh, shortage problem that uh, many AI researchers are experiencing uh, because they're all getting snapped up by cryptocurrency miners. Uh, luckily for us, that's not something that really affects us because the way we work and the volumes of data that we're using, we're not really doing anything that's GPU accelerated. And so we, we're not constrained by the supply of GPUs. So we're not having to fight with uh, Bitcoin enthusiasts to get the last uh, graphics card off the shelf, and 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 so like 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 you mentioned, there's the, like an open source library that has uh, you know 300 plus algorithms or whatever. And so like like in this context, what what is an algorithm? Like you know, uh, I I I never took the algorithms course uh, when I was in college, but it was like you know, here's five ways to sort shit. Like was the kind of algorithm that they they used to have. But my sense is that that these these uh, algorithms or schemes or models are like a lot more complex than just like sorting a list of strings. Yeah, but mm, not hugely. So again, it depends, but a lot of it is about doing this sort of thing over and over and refining and saying, okay, this is just 1% better than that. So we'll do that six times, and that will give us a statistically significant result. Uh, there's a lot of stuff like that going on. So uh, it's more depending on where you find your good pattern as well. So it's pretty rare that one algorithm is going to be good for everything. But if you have a good way of figuring out, hey, we've got this particular input, and you can use um, time patterns on that one, and this other input, it's not really time sensitive, but on the other hand, it's very rich data format. So you can do natural language processing on that and find patterns in the text itself. Uh, and then combine those two insights into a sort of macro insight. So then that's where you really get something interesting going. And so it's, uh, it's that combination that really gets interesting. There's no one silver bullet, at least not yet. Uh, so you say, oh, this is the obvious way to do it. Everyone agrees, uh, case closed, and we move on to the next level of abstraction. Uh, no doubt that will happen at some point, but we're not there yet. As I say, it's still moving pretty fast. So, so, so tell me if this like uh, hand wavy characterization is accurate. All right. So, so uh, nowadays, so in the past relative to nowadays, uh, computing was expensive, right? Like it's, it's, it's all we could do to figure out how to pay all of the, uh, all of the millions of workers in the UK and figure out what their paycheck was. Like we just had teams of people and programmers working on what basically ADP does on a calculator now or whatever. So that was hard. Uh, and then, and then let alone needing to do some sort of like data analysis was very difficult. But now you can get like a huge pile of data. What do they call that? A, a corpus, a body. Uh, and you can devise some algorithm. Yep. And, and whatever this algorithm does is basically uh, uh, like looking at each data item and figuring out some characteristic of it that somehow matches to another data item and is saying, and therefore these two things are related somehow. Or... Uh, these two things might contain, well, I mean, maybe that's all it is. It's like these two things are related somehow. And 
doing that is difficult because if I remember sure. my, my MapReduce, what MapReduce basically is, is doing exactly that, is I want to compare everything to everything and then store what my finding was. And then as you were saying, I might do that 200 times or 1,000 times, and that's the reducing part. And then at the end of that, all that I've got is I had a data set of 10 million items, and now I've figured out that they are, they're related in these ways. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, there was that famous XKCD cartoon. There's an XKCD for everything, right? It's uh, our generation still, but <laughs> that's true. Uh, it's uh, and it was just you know, I take a I take a big pile of data and I stir it, and insights pop out. So there are a couple of interesting uh, consequences of that, though. Uh, and one is that it's not always obvious how you got the insights. Yeah. So it used to be that uh, you had these deterministic models. And the downside was you had to build them, but the upside was that once you built out that long chain of if-then-else, uh, you understood how it worked. You could decompose it. You could set yourself a breakpoint in the middle if it wasn't clear what it was doing, and it was comprehensible. Many of these AI models, it's not really obvious how they achieve a certain uh, result. So they'll say to you, hey, these things are related. And I say, why? And I don't know. <laughs> and uh, right. the other consequence is that uh, the the output needs to be evaluated by a human. So most of these things, calling them artificial intelligence is a misnomer. We actually try to stay away from that term at Moogsoft. Uh, we, we talk about data science and algorithms and machine learning, sure, but actual AI is a, probably a bridge too far. It's what it does. It says, these are a bunch of things which look related to us, but then you still need a domain expert to come in and say, Oh, yeah, and that tells me something as a human expert. Right. So that's um, going back to a couple of conversation folks ago. That's why uh, I prefer being in this particular domain uh, of AI because it's not about getting rid of people. Nobody's going to fire all the sysadmins and replace them with an AI, not for a good few years yet. Uh, this is all about making the sysadmins' job easier, which in turn lets me look at myself in the mirror and sleep easy at night because I'm not just going around uh, taking away people's livelihoods. Yeah, and, and it's like what's going on in chess right now. So I, I don't play chess at all, so this may be a complete mischaracterization, but I read an interesting article about it. There's this thing called Centaur Chess. So the best AI programs have been beating humans for a good while now. It's Deep Blue versus Gary Kasparov, and it was all over for the humans. Um, but these days, there's this thing called Centaur Chess, which is humans playing with an AI on a team. And these can beat not just the best human players, but also the best AI players. That's a stronger combination of human plus AI than AI alone. Uh, and that's very interesting. And it's kind of how I see this. This is back to Steve Jobs' memorable catchphrase of the computer being a bicycle for the mind. It's not like a car you get in and uh, you know, drive. Uh, this is a bicycle. You have to put effort into it, but it still gets you around way faster than you could get around on your own two feet. And what we're doing these days is going in that same direction. Mm. Well, you, you know, you know, I, th I think, I think in a little bit we should like pull an example from uh, from the, the relatively benign world of systems management, and, and then, and then, you know, as as you were just delightfully doing, we can speculate wildly about things out of our domain, which is, you know. That's what we're here for. As, as you said, uh, to co-opt some other terms, humans just operate at the margins. They just go for the wacky stuff, which, which is good. Uh, but so, so the, you said one thing in there that, that, uh, that maybe not, I don't know what a positive, uh, irony is, but like ironically is sort of the question on itself. Like, like as you were saying, um, the deal that one of the problematic things uh, with, with machine learning now is you don't always, I guess you would say it's non-deterministic. Like you don't know, always know why something was devised. Yeah. And, and like, uh, I don't know if intuitively is the right word, but, but my immediate reaction to that is like, but everything generates logs <laughs> if you have the storage for it. Right. So, so in theory you could store what the operation was now. Now that said the thing and this is my sort of naive understanding is like at some point, and, and I always feel like this is maybe this is a question is like, this is, this is too much. Uh, what's the word anthropomorphizing of, of what goes on. But like, I always, it seems like in machine learning at some point, the thing starts writing its own algorithms or it starts kind of like coming up with its own stuff, which 
I could sort of understand that means you don't know why it did something. But again, like, can't you just like write to system.out and be like, here are the two pieces of data I had, and here's the algorithm I ran on it, and therefore you know exactly how I made this one minute decision? Or, or am I, are my metaphors like going down the wrong hole here? No, sure. So I had the same reaction when I first heard about this. And I was like, but surely, you know, there's a log and you can say, and this parameter crossed the threshold at this point, And therefore, that, that's why it got flagged this way rather than that way. And um, it just turns out it's, it's not that simple. It's uh, rarely one thing that happens to, to trip your thing over the edge so that it goes in one bucket rather than the other bucket. It's a bunch of stuff and potentially a bunch of stuff happening in sequence uh, or in a particular mm. iteration uh, so that eventually it gets to that point. Uh, a signal gets reinforced uh, rather than getting canceled out. And meanwhile, something else is happening in another thread uh, and the end result is that. So, you know, you could notionally go and decompose all of that. It's, it's all computers. You could set a million breakpoints and probably figure it out but not in any sort of useful time frame right, uh, right, right, unless right. you're actually trying to modify the algorithm itself. Oh, okay, okay, that, that makes sense. So, so, I mean, it is indeed the fact that, to, to, to nuancely rephrase it, right, it's, it's not so much that uh, a, a intermediate to advanced like ML run, you won't know why, well, you will, you, it is the case that you will not always know why something happened, but the reason you won't know why is because as a human, it's incomprehensible. It's like, Maybe another ML thing could tell you why, yeah. <laughs> but but like we we can't deal with the parallel nature of that kind of data set making as many perhaps millions or maybe thousands of like comparisons and and decision is the wrong word, but we we just can't figure out that decision tree and hold it in our head. We're not we're not computers, but there is there is a reason that some entity could know. It's just that we can't read that many logs, <laughs> so to speak. Exactly. You can't hold that much state in your head. And that, that's that's actually one of the slides in my standard deck. It's like, in one of our customers generates more than a billion data points a day. And meanwhile, the human operating memory is seven to nine data points at any time, uh, depending on how much coffee you have in your system. Uh, so there's an obvious mismatch there, which is why we invented computers in the first place. And, and going back to something you said before, it starts to get really interesting as well. Uh, when you think about processing the data around a whole economy. I think it was in The Guardian, and perhaps it's unsurprising with The Guardian being who they are, that they were saying, you know, this is where uh, a planned economy starts to be possible. And they were comparing Amazon to the Soviet planned economy, and they were saying, you know, Amazon now has the sort of computing power and algorithmic understanding that Soviet planners didn't. Uh, and so they're, they're effectively building their planned economy. They've got their own healthcare system going on. They've got their own banking that they're launching. Uh, they've already got all of this logistics and transportation expertise. Uh, Amazon is starting to be become a, an extremely large and complex entity. And that's uh, uh, maybe is going to be the first steps towards uh, singularity, uh, AI hard takeoff and all the things that uh, keep uh, Stephen Hawking up at night. <laughs> right, right. No, and, and, and I think that finishes our loop. And then, and then we'll move on to an example of... of it's 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 easy to imbue too much, um, let's call it unbiased intelligence into uh, some machine learning thing, and think as you were saying, like, oh, it can figure out how to plan the economy, and so we should just do that. I mean, that's that's like a a a, a, a Twilight Zone, or maybe even I don't know, I don't watch Black Mirror anymore, but you know, one of those kind of like levels of speculative stuff that be it would be hard to achieve that point, but it's good to. To think about something as grand as that for all the uh, factotum type of things it would do, but in theory, you could have it tell you, like, so, look, look at all. That, that, that's one of the. Yeah, that's one of the Elon Musk examples, right? He yeah, talks about yeah, the paperclip yeah. machine. Oh, uh, yeah, so the, there's a machine that's set the goal of optimizing to design paperclips and produce as many paperclips paper as possible. And ends up taking over the world and disassembling humans to yeah. get at their constituent materials yeah, yeah. to build more paper clips. I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm sure that's yeah, a, that's, that's not that's, what we want to do. That's probably some like Heinleinian notion of just like that that dude needs to update his sci-fi consumption. 
get get some more more stuff. I I think I think as as as, as I'm fond of making <laughs> fun of more up to date than Heinlein. That's that's right. I, I mean, as as I'm fond of making fun of, I think I think actually in that book Diaspora, like it has a lot more interesting like speculative stuff about computers going on, right? Like even the uh, not to digress here, but even even the idea of what it means if. If you uh, if you had like a real AI that was a copy of a human and it's like long lived, and then if that AI copies itself, that's just like what's going on there? Like so that's that's interesting stuff to speculate a lot more than like the old tired story of like uh, you know anytime you tell a computer to optimize something, it will realize that the most optimal thing is doing nothing, and therefore it should destroy everything. <laughs> like, like there's, there's a very short line between like, the most efficient use of energy is for nothing to consume energy. And so therefore, if that's my mission, I will destroy the universe and energy consumption is zero. Mission done, right? Uh, anyways. Uh, Entropy resolved. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, uh, but, but I, I think, I think you're, you're hitting on even in these absurd examples I was just making fun of the, the thing that I think is good for all these, like, I don't know what you would call them in an AI world, but the human side of the thing is to say, we can't really trust going back to my example that like all these macro and microeconomic things we feed into the system, that there will be an unbiased result that benefits everyone because, we are the prime movers of it, right? Like we're the ones who set the uh, the criteria from the beginning and the algorithms. And I mean, I guess, I mean, the paperclip thing is a good example of that, right? Like if the original thing the humans inputted was optimized for energy consumption, the humans are the ones who imbued the system with that. And, and you know, it's sort of like the old, uh, all the pondering the uh, the Western people did about like, uh, you know, the the sort of like core problem of christianity at least in my view for a long time which is like if this if this uh if this dude knows everything and is all powerful across time why would all this suffering result if the dude wants to love you and be kind and like i mean this is a bit of an overstatement but i feel like probably a good 2000 years of western philosophy was just about that question <laughs> and so similarly like like in a, if you if you're gonna, <laughs> much. if you're going to set up an ai to, that like is going to destroy things then like it's the people who are ultimately responsible for it which i think i think you know goes to the the ethical thing of like i think it's why everyone rightly freaks out about like you know um Whenever we do some photo recognition or job interview things, mysteriously minorities are still discriminated against, <laughs> which is like, that's because your models are shit, right? And they reflect what the humans uh, wanted to make. Yeah. Anyhow, um, so get, getting to the thing I keep alluding to. So, so give us like a good, uh, uh, what's the word? Sort of like fascinating media example from like the, the, the Moogsoft or just like the systems management world that kind of shows off what... And demonstrates a lot of what we've been saying, like how how machine learning as we know it now is like gives you much different outcomes and, and capabilities than you would have had in like 2004 or, or something like that. Sure. So, yeah, descending from uh, the sublime heights of religion and philosophy right down to the depths of the data center where the, the Morlocks live. <laughs> I, right. I joke because I used to be a sysadmin in a previous life. Yeah. Before joining the ranks of the Eli marketing. Uh, so, yeah, to give you an example, so it's um, a UK insurance company, uh, and they had, as is fairly typical for organizations, a fairly immature uh, IT operations process that basically devolved to email. Email was the way that they communicated, right, the way right. that they tracked stuff the way that it was managed and everything lived in people's inboxes and was managed through a bunch of ADSs. And so they realized, you know, growing business, uh, they'd gone digital in a big way and it just wasn't working for them anymore. It wasn't scaling. Uh, stuff was getting lost. It took too long to explain this insane system that had evolved over time to any new members of the team. And so they brought us in and uh, we were able to fix that immediate problem that they had uh, by just giving them a more sane way uh, of managing things. Uh, so the first step is massive noise reduction. We have an automate, automated method for identifying what's even a significant event that's worth taking a human's time to look at, because humans are still pretty expensive. 
uh, and then correlating those significant events. So instead of opening, you know, literally 17 tickets uh, to all the various teams that are impacted, because you've got the network team, it's always the network's fault, right? Uh, the server team, the database team, the middleware team, blah, 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 blah. You can have one meta ticket and everyone can work together on that. So that was step one, making sure there were just fewer things to look at and then giving people a better way to work together to, uh, to solve the problem better than email anyway. Uh, because if you have all of these 17 different teams that are either responsible uh, or need to be informed or, you know, the rest of the RACI algorithm uh, acronym, uh, then email just isn't going to cut it because you end up with these huge chains of people bouncing things back and forth. Equally, just dumping it all into a service desk, again, it's not going to work. You get escalations, you get ticket ping pong. So just finding a better way for people to work together uh, is kind of key to that, getting these uh, representatives from different teams to collaborate and then give them fancy stuff like chat ops so they can build automation into that process and so on. So that was kind of step one for these guys. Uh, and that solved the immediate problem for them. It uh, took them off the hook. And so they, they were able to actually, for once, keep up with the incoming flow of events. And so we did a nice success story and profile, and uh, everyone went went their way happy. But, you know, I've worked for vendors in the past where you do the success story and the profile, and then a year later, you've got an event coming up, and you say, oh, can we call these people up and uh, get someone from, from them to come and speak? Uh, to our events, they oh, no, 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 it can't possibly. They decommissioned the software. They're suing us in court because we didn't deliver on any of the ROI. <laughs> oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's the worst. Like maybe, maybe you work at a much smaller company than I do, but I'm, I always have to be, uh, I have to be ever vigilant of when I have the, uh, the show off, you know, astounding feats of awesomeness slide with the logos to make sure that like, all these people still like us and they're not pissed off at us for something. <laughs> but, but it is, that, that is, that is, if, 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 if you're too much into paying attention to this sort of, uh, you know, marketing of tech companies, it's fun to watch over time when they get their logo slide up, like how those logos change. And, and, uh, I remember the particularly astute and long, long memoried analysts at like IBM and SAP events would know to ask about these things. And, uh, it is, it is, uh, I don't know. It, and it was always, for some reason, the British ones. They seem to be the ones who pay attention to this stuff, where the Americans are just like, you know, happy-go-lucky. Don't, don't really care. But it's, uh, there you go. Always an issue. Uh, cynical Brits. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we went back um, a year and a bit later, and we did a refresh. And we said, okay, so what's happened next after we'd solved that email problem? Uh, because uh, we sell a subscription uh, a subscription service, so they have to renew, uh, which is good because it keeps us as a vendor on our toes. I think everyone uh, should buy their, their stuff on a subscription basis because it makes sure that the, the vendor's interest is aligned with the user's interest. If you do perpetual, once a sales guy's got, you know, got their commission or a salesperson has got their commission, uh, then that's it. They're, they're set. They have no further reason to talk to you. Sure, there's a maintenance fee every year, but that's... Uh, Completely different division, much smaller amount of money, and the salesperson's already moved on. The the attention isn't isn't properly there anymore, and so a subscription is a much healthier way of doing it, to my mind. So so we went back in, motivated by wanting to get our subscription dollar or pound, uh, as it was in this case in the UK, and uh, said, okay, so what happened next? We got everything out of people's email inboxes and into a modern collaboration tool. I said, ah, oh, it's fantastic. Not only have we been able to deliver, you know, this much higher quality of service, make the users much happier, but we've launched 600 new services uh, over the last, I think, six to eight months it was uh, to the business. And we haven't had to add any headcounts to do that. So that that's just a demonstration of it. They've been just drowning in all of this high volume, low value nonsense that they had to deal with, but it was taking away all their time from the more useful and valuable and quite frankly, personally interesting stuff that's, uh, that they wanted to be doing. And that's how IT gets in this spiral of uh, negative reputation and becomes a, the department of no. Have you heard that phrase? As, uh, <laughs> it comes whenever up you go to the IT day. department, they say no. Can't, can't possibly. Exactly. So the reason for that is because every IT department I've ever been in or near is just completely underwater with uh, all the stuff they have to do. They have a huge long list of stuff they'd like to do, 
And the thing that you're saying, oh, it's obvious you should totally do this, it's there. It's already there on that list. IT ops people aren't stupid. It's just there are only so many hours on the day. Uh, and so that's what we'd done. We'd, we'd unlocked all of this free time for them, and they, was, they would become, uh, to use hoary cliche, but they'd become much more proactive and a, a real partner to the business. But the point was IT was a differentiator to this company. It was an online insurance company, so the performance of the IT in a very real sense, was the performance of the business. Uh, still is, in fact. And so that's uh, uh, the sort of positive result that you can get if the AI is doing high-volume, low-value stuff, and then the Centaur model that we mentioned before in the context of chess, it gets passed to the human experts who can actually understand what that means and make sense of it and take uh, intelligent action based on that because they're not drowning in just a sea of red alerts that don't tell them anything useful. So, so there, there's like, to my mind, there's like, there's like two layers of what's going on there. One of them is sort of like, uh, I don't know, my, my law of productivity, which is like just doing something will get you a huge boost in productivity because you probably were doing nothing before that. And, and, and in the sense of like, uh, you know, this applies to like diets or not relying on email to run your IT department <laughs> and and introducing something in the system that like uh, either lets you track things and regulate stuff so you can make better dietary decisions or or that like uh, you have some sort of analysis like like even I'm, you know, maybe in your case, it's not like this, but, you know, back in the 2000s, like even doing some keyword analysis of email Nowadays, we wouldn't even say analysis, but like just doing some sort of keyword searching would probably optimize uh, the way you were doing things. Now, so so there's like that layer, which is always good. But the part that I'm most curious about is like, okay, so so we do that, and then like going back to what you're we talking about earlier, like what are what are like some examples of actual like algorithms that that either get generated or that someone gets that also improves them like a, a genuine sort of application of of machine learning that that occurs in this area sure so in this case there were a couple of different things that were happening so a big problem that they had was purely volume so just getting too many events through and so we have a mechanism that lets us identify the significant events as i touched on briefly before so what that's looking for is patterns of significance uh, of the events themselves. So it's using uh, a, a mathematical technique called Shannon Entropy. Now, Claude Shannon was a guy who worked at Bell Labs back in the, the very dawn of telecommunications. And he, what he was trying to do was figure out how many voice calls you could fit down a copper wire before you could no longer understand the conversation at the other end of the wire. And so what he found, and he founded this whole discipline uh, of uh, uh, information entropy, was it's it's uh, it's all about patterns of predictability. If uh, the next uh, bit of information is highly predictable based on what came before, you don't really need to transmit it because it can easily be inferred. Oh. Uh, if, on the other hand, it's uh, exactly if it's unexpected, on the other hand, you really need to transmit that because if you don't, information is being lost. Um, so I'm vastly simplifying. Shannon entropy is a fascinating mathematical field that I'm not fully qualified to, to understand. Uh, but that's basically what's, what we do. There's a variant of that technique. So we're looking at the patterns of events. So if you have something like a heartbeat comes through and it's just the same message at the same interval all the time, there's absolutely no point in wasting a human operator's time with that. It's uh, just a distraction. Get rid of it. If you have something that's unexpected, that's rare, that's never been seen before, or that's never been seen in the context of things surrounding it, that's very interesting, and we should probably take a second look. Uh, so to interrupt you, to relate back to um, the other stuff. So in that case, all right. So so let's say uh, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of a typical. Let's, I'm just, I'll, I'll simplify it, but let's. We have a huge volume of stuff. We've got ten thousand servers. I can never deal with like Greek letter variable stuff, so I got to ground it in, in actual terms. We've we've got ten thousand servers running our online insurance thing, and. I don't know, a country full of people who are constantly coming in and getting quotes for our insurance. Plus, we've got the back end of other services that come in. So like when I go to mint.com or something, it's like you're paying too much for your insurance. 
So anyways, the whole point of the business is like, I want to drive people to uh, buy insurance through me. I don't know if I provide the insurance or I'm just a broker, whatever. I want them to transact on buying new insurance, which often means switching from an existing one. Uh, and, uh, and then I make money. And so in that case, I've got these 10,000 servers, again, a number I've just made up, and they generate a shit ton of information <laughs> about, about just like, just like the normal stuff that's happening. And then also like, as the normal stuff is happening, bad things will happen. And, you know, the core 10 servers that run the database could come down and then we lose millions of dollars a day because we can't transact insurance or whatever. And so part of part of an algorithm That's that we, part of an algorithm that we want to introduce is um, this is whenever we run this algorithm and it's going to output at least two things. One of them is that according to all the heartbeats that I've gotten, the the dis, the, the lag time in networking, the disk use, like all these metrics, everything looks normal, right? Like my prediction is based on what this looks yeah. like, everything's fine, right? And and maybe painfully analogously, it's sort of like uh, when we look at my son's progress in school and you're like, eh, for his age and where he is, the way he's writing is fine or not fine. And like he can do this kind of reading and he knows how to do like – more or less arithmetic and some multiplication. So based on how everyone else is performing and our own algorithmic rules, he's all right. Or, holy crap, he's not doing well. We got to get him some extra work. So you kind of establish this algorithm of like looking at the stream of information. Now, what's key in there, back to what we were talking about earlier, is someone has to figure out what that is. <laughs> they have to figure out that like, what does normal look like? Like, and, and that seems to be like the input that a human exactly. gives initially. And then maybe the part that gets confusing is also part of what they input is to be maybe a little painfully abstract is like, how would I write an equation or I guess you could say algorithm that would determine if things are all right? Like, I can't just say that if the CPU is at 80%, things are all right. I need to somehow make an equation that determines that 80% number. And then, and then the, the unknowableness gets sure. introduced when, when the algorithms, and again, this is too much anthropomorphizing, but the algorithms start to like modify themselves. And so they're like, well, now it's 83% and now it's 84%. And the way that I determine that is who knows what. So I don't know. I mean, that sounds like a fair way of yeah, saying. It's just normal for whatever else is happening. So just a couple of points to what you, what you were saying though, because one of the things you said, Figure out what normal looks like. Uh, so that's that's one of the the key things uh, that uh, this has changed over the last few years, over the last 10, 15 years maybe max. There's been just this complete sea change in what IT infrastructure looks like mm. from an ops point of view. So where before you could more or less figure out what normal looks like, and that view wouldn't change too much. Uh, and therefore, you could figure out your algorithm, as you said. The smart person could sit down, figure out what normal looks like, and codify that in a net call system, a deterministic system that you could then walk down a decision tree of if then else. Uh, is the CPU above 80%? Yes. Okay. In that case, is network throughput over whatever threshold? Yes. And so on. Um, that's less and less valuable because stuff is changing faster and faster. All of these uh containers and microservices and all of all of that fun stuff and the, extending that to the network side as well with software defined everything it means it's harder and harder to figure out what normal is and once you have it's going to be valid for a shorter and shorter period of time so one of our co-founders likes to quote dick cheney of all people he's about the person furthest away politically that you can imagine from Dick Cheney. But <laughs> you may remember Dick Cheney's famous speech about the unknown unknowns. Uh, so there's the known knowns and everyone can manage those. Uh, you can you can easily write a rule that if the CPU hits 95%, we should probably do something about that. If the temperature threshold exceeds whatever, uh, execute some sort of orderly th uh, shutdown. That's easy. Then there's the uh, the known unknowns, the things that you know that you don't know but you can factor for those in your planning. But what gets you is the unknown unknowns, the things that you don't even realize you don't know. Uh, and that's sort of stuff that, that keeps sysadmins up at night. 
what sorts of weird coincidence of apparently unrelated events is going to cause my pager to go off tonight? Uh, and you get more and more of that as our architectures get more complex. I mean, you know this from, from your side with all the, the PaaS stuff. There are more and more levels of abstraction in an enterprise application, whatever that even means. <laughs> They're saying the word application anymore. And so it's this sort of looking backwards uh, at what, what was normal in the past. Uh, it still has some value, but it's not sufficient. You need to be able to process on the fly, hey, there's a weird pattern of stuff that's occurring right now uh, without necessarily referring to uh, to patterns that have been valid in the past. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and I guess, I mean, I'm kind of artificing something here, but like, so going back to my like uh, 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 layman's understanding of how machine learning works, right? Where you're, I'm over-rotating on cluster stuff because that's all I know. There's probably some bias of understanding the world based on what you know, which doesn't even sound like a bias. I think that's what, how things work. <laughs> it would be hard to understand the world based on things. So humans you, do. That's right. It'd be hard to understand the world based on things you didn't know because you don't know them. So you couldn't use them to understand the world, but whatever. Uh, anyways, uh, that pattern of shadow looks like a leopard. I should watering <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but, but you know, so, so in this figuring out what's normal, uh, you would some, you would say our, our corpus is whatever, uh, are basically examples of what normal is. And so what we're going to do in our analysis is when we, when we come up with a new chain of events, right? Um, like we're going to compare that to what we know is normal. And if it says, yes, this is like two steps from normal, then we determine that the new thing is normal. And then the, it seems like there's two things, at least two things that you require to be able to do that. And the first one is just like the raw compute power that we have now. And not only the actual compute power, but the affordability of the compute power. So it's much easier to just run whatever analysis you want. And and by easier, again, I mean cheapness, right? You could always build a... Uh, Given enough time and money, historically, you could build whatever. I guess time ruins the point that I'm making. But we used to have supercomputers that could do incredibly complicated things. They're just like hella expensive. But now anyone can have one of those, so you have raw compute power. But these days you can rent one, exactly. Right, right. And, and then the second thing, and this is where the mystery always still is, is someone has to come up with at least two types of algorithms. Uh, and the first one is like, well, how do we group this thing together to know what this, that this is a transaction, right? So we have, we have to have some filter that brings that in. And then the second one is like, how do we do this comparison? Like, how do we run the numbers of comparison between these two things to determine how close or how far this new thing is? And then that seems to be a lot of those two things together being coming up with an algorithm and then also having the raw compute is where a lot of this magic uh, comes into play. And, th and then as the bonus, there's the third level that we keep kind of like rubbing up against, which is like, and at some point, the machine learning writes its own algorithms <laughs> uh, where, where in theory, yeah. some sort of magic occurs. Uh, and, and, then, and then we have the paperclip problem, as, as you bring up. So one key point, though, is uh, the, the corpus thing uh, is something that people have been trying to do for a while. So notions like dynamic thresholding and whatnot. And uh, the experience that we've had, uh, certainly that I personally have seen, is that it doesn't work at scale. I've never seen it work at scale. It works in the lab. It looks promising. Uh, seems fine on a whiteboard. But when you ask, okay, so who's doing this? People start looking at their shoes and clearing their throats and changing the subject. Uh, so one of the key things that we do is we, we get away from that. We don't ask you for, give us your last six months of data and we'll churn it and try to identify patterns. Uh, like I say, there are people out there doing that. It's not, it's not an invalid approach. Uh, but to our minds, it's not sufficient, and it's going to be less and less useful as time goes forward and things continue to accelerate. So to give you a really concrete example, so we did a project with one of the big Swiss banks a little while ago, and literally the third cluster that we generated, we knew nothing about their architecture, we knew nothing about their application, but it generated the, the cluster number three, and all the, the Swiss bank people started getting very excited and jumping up and down. We had no idea what was going oh, on. That's an astonishing result together. for the Swiss to get them excited and jumping up and down. It must have been mind-blowing. I know, right? Turns out it's possible. 
there were and there wasn't even any cheese involved. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> what happened was uh, it's identified this pattern of events where there was a, basically some flapping ports on uh, or a single port that was flapping, but it was generating a whole bunch of events uh, on a key piece of network infrastructure, and that was causing uh, NTPD to crap itself and go down. And that, in turn, was causing WebSphere MQ to just get lost uh, for a moment. And that was causing one of their main trading floor applications to go down. So this was this super complex chain of events. And flapping ports are exactly the sort of stuff that you would typically ignore. You'd say, oh, who cares, flapping ports, it flaps, it came back, fine, we can ignore that. But it turns out that because of this really convoluted chain of events, it was leading to major trading floor outages lasting multiple hours and costing millions of dollars. Um, and so being able to to look at that uh, was hugely useful to the operators to figure out what was going on. But we were able to figure that out with without needing any sort of corpus, mm. without needing to be fed uh, a CMDB, speaking of mythical beasts that no one's ever seen in the wild, uh, fully populated, fully up-to-date CMDB. <laughs> and uh, that gets you... That gets you those those interesting results, being able to spot those patterns as they go by in the stream. So, so to sort of sort of summarize by simplifying. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, I, I always like the idea of a CMDB. It's it's almost like a platonic logos. It's like the actual state of everything exists somewhere as as an actual almost physical thing, but we don't have access to it. And so we just try but to. But we're looking at shadows on the wall of exactly. the Exactly. Shadows inside the uh, data center, trying to interpret what's good, like caused by the yeah, fire yeah. of the blinking LED lights. But, anyways, uh, so, so, you know, there's, there's a, a blog post in there somewhere. <laughs> That's right. There, you know, there's an interesting way of relating back general ML stuff there, at least in my mind, which is uh, so what you're trying to find there, uh, or, or I should say what you ended up finding there in that example is a complete end-to-end -end transaction. And at some point in the transaction, flapping, as you say, was happening. A bad thing was happening. And the, the problem is that uh, it's very difficult because things are non-deterministic in a cloud-based – well, it's not that – again, they're unknowable to humans. Uh, they're – Everything's deterministic. That's probably another philosophy rant. I forget. Eventually. Some, yeah. Yeah, we need some Germans to explain that to us from the 1800s if causation really exists, or maybe it's 1700s. I forget. But anyways, um, things are causing things <laughs> in a transaction like that. And the issue, <laughs> the issue is that we as humans can't figure that out in a timely fashion before the company goes bankrupt because you can't do a trade on the floor. So what you do is you get all of this data about, I'm exaggerating here, everything that's happening on your computers, and you do basically that kind of cluster analysis on it where you're like, I want you to go out and find things that are related to things. Um, and the way that you might do that is in a temporal manner, like the time that things occurred. So that's one input that you might have. And then you also might have an input of like similar pieces of data are going through this system. And... Again, I'm just making up stuff to simplify it. I, I'm sure this isn't how it actually occurred, but something like a uh, distributed no, trace. That's actually two of our algos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, something like distributed tracing or a Zipkin or whatever. Part of what you do is you get the damn developers to actually instrument their applications. And you're like, I want you to put this GUID, this unique identifier, in every moment of a, trans of a thing you know is occurring. And so what you could do is you could determine like these ports, this unique string is going at the port or through it at this moment. And therefore, and again, I'm grossly simplifying this, when we run this cluster analysis, that's one of the attributes we use of this thing that allows us to say it's related to this other thing. And so what we find out is that these flapping ports, some of the data for figuring out if you should transact on a trade is going through this port. And we know it's related to way down the line, some, some, you know, otherwise mild man or a very efficient Swiss person like madly clicking on their tablet to transact something and like pulling all that together as a human would be extremely yeah. difficult. But because you sell, give, give uh, this ML thing a, a corpus and say like, I don't fucking know, find things that are related. You end up finding this cluster of things that ends up being a, a transaction that then 
allows you it doesn't necessarily fix the problem but it tells you where to go to fix the problem and you've done uh, some root cause analysis i don't know you think that's like a good fanciful fairy tale around that pretty much so just a, a couple of refinements i'd add to it so uh one is that you know it'd be great if we could it's like the cmdb right it would be great if we could get everything instrumented and have the these unique identifiers that's probably never going to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean you should give up on that idea. And we integrate with a whole bunch of the APM tools that work on precisely that basis. But the problem there that you have is coverage. Uh, so they, they never get all of the apps. Mm. Uh, some of the apps are written in a different technology that can't be instrumented by whatever APM tool. Uh, getting the visibility from there down into the network layer is a whole other problem. And that also ties into philosophical problem. So because of this complexity problem, human reaction is to try to simplify. And one way to simplify is to specialize. So you get the network admins using a network monitoring tool to look at network alerts, and they see flapping ports, and they go, who cares about flapping ports? Call me when the link goes down. <laughs> right, uh, then right. you've got the, uh, the Unix sysadmins, and they're looking at you know, the network time demon, uh, and so they're saying, well, you know, okay, so some clocks might get out of sync, but they'll resync next interval. Uh, I'll look at it when I get to it. But meanwhile, I've got this other thing that's dumping core all over the place. I'll start from that one. And meanwhile, the, the WebSphere MQ admins, they're tearing their hair out, but they can't figure it out because they don't have the root cause. They only have a whole bunch of symptoms uh, spraying all over their desk. And so that's the the philosophical aspect there that's by, by trying to simplify and wall off these things, it makes it more manageable for the humans, but at the cost of running into these edge cases where uh, it's not obvious uh, which bucket it should fall into. And by giving people that holistic overview, we can we can let them see those patterns that otherwise would have been lost because it would have been three, four, five, seven different tickets and remedy. There's, there's an interesting, I don't know what to call it, perspective in there, which is, uh, uh, well, it's one of the first things you learn in like, in like, reasoning and engineering i guess which is if something is complex you should break it down into its parts and then you can figure it out and 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 yeah. that 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 is one good way of going about things but as you just kind of went over that can also cause problems which you know all the gold ratty and lean people would call that local optimization right like you you lose track of the big picture as we would say and how these things are related you get, and you get trapped on a local optimum yeah, yeah. And and to some extent, I mean, again, maybe I'm like focusing too much on like map reducing type of stuff. But basically, ML stuff kind of does the opposite. Like it looks at everything by definition. <laughs> and so yep. it's it's very big picture right. in that it can visit every single thing and relate everything to everything. Whereas a locally optimized system doesn't do that. It only looks at a, at a subset of things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like the scenario you were saying is like the, uh, um, the vicious cycle of garbage in, garbage out, which is like, if garbage comes into my system, as long as I can push that garbage back out from my domain, I'm cool. <laughs> Whereas like someone has to go in and stop, <laughs> exactly. stop pushing garbage through the pipe. The right <laughs> and it's not like these, uh, these systems are magic. I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times the algorithms start modifying themselves and we have that too there's various learning capabilities where the system will look at hey the same thing happened last week would you like to see uh, how your colleague solved it last time and that's great uh, unless it gets fed with a whole bunch of bad solutions that have negative outcomes or it'll start learning what a root cause looks like in your environment by seeing what people tag as root causes but again, it's possible to train it wrong, to give it the wrong root causes, and it'll faithfully start showing, hey, people have said that this could be a root cause. And I'm very confident because it looks exactly like those other root causes, except those weren't the right root causes. So, you know, you, you have to watch out for that. But again, that's the the role of the sysadmin. It's no longer to to go back to a couple of uh, of your interviews back. It's, it's no longer that someone's SSHing into the containers uh, and doing stuff by hand. It's that someone is is sitting and thinking about what needs to happen and reviewing the results. And so it's, it's a bit of a different approach to, to managing things. It's a whole pets versus cattle thing. You're not taking care of individual pets that, uh, that have names and that you care deeply about personally. You have a whole bunch of cattle, 10,000 of them. They have tags in their ears. They're identified by numbers. If one of them gets sick, well, you get out the humane killer and order another couple up. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. That that probably would be a fertile error to do like ML metaphors in is like herd management in the sense of in the sense of if one of them dies, you know, you sort of don't really care, but you really care if one of them has like a highly contagious disease. <laughs> right? And so like Exactly. So, so like to, to some extent you can just I guess literally shoot the the one cow in the head, right? And be done with it. But then you also do need to make sure you do need to do some root cause analysis to make sure that there's not like an infection that it has that's going to quickly spread to uh, all the other cows. And and may, maybe to some extent, I, I don't really, despite being a Texan, I don't know about like managing cattle. But to some extent, maybe it's a good example of like how ML stuff could help because you would be analyzing the health of all the cows and then you would be relating them to each other. And p- potentially you could find like clusters of infection. And if that if that cluster grew then you would knew, know that something uh, bad was happening. And then, and then I mean, also, uh, I, I won't give you any space to critique my cow analogy because I'm sure it's terrible. Uh, but, you, you know, I, I think... I, think I it, wouldn't know. <laughs> in, I'm a city boy. That's right. Maybe we could talk about <laughs> cheese or something. But, uh, but you know, in systems, anal- in systems management, it seems like the most grandiose magic thing you would expect from ML would be like... Uh, this is a weird behavior I've never seen before. And so I'm going to do more analysis based on what this weird pattern is and then present it to a human to decide if it's weird or not. Like I'll basically raise an exception and be like, we've never seen this happening before. (laughs) Like, like these, these 500 things. That's basically it. That's basically all of ML. This looks interesting. This looks different from other things that I see. Hey, human take a look uh, and then watch what the human does so you know what happens next time. We, we have never grouped these 500 things together. And so that's weird. <laughs> like, like someone should tell me yeah. the machine learning thing if this is normal or if this is a, a an, it's not a, is it an aberration? Like, like some, a, 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 something that's different than, uh, than the normal. Huh. Well, one day I, sh- I should find some good book exactly. that explains like, I think photo recognition would be great. Like just a book of how that actually works. It doesn't have to explain how the chip uses like weak and strong electrical charges that translates to binary to like do things, but at least down to like, I don't know, maybe even seeing some Python or code would be interesting, but it'd be fun to like see a full route through things. Cause I think, I think photo recognition is easily relatable. And then it goes back to like what we were talking about is like, you could find weird things in the way that photos were clusters that clustered that would lead to a conclusion. And and I assume that's um, rounding out with the ethical thing. That's a lot of what's happening there is, is somehow people are deciding that if all these people have frowns on their face and they had just taken a picture of like drinking a lot six hours before these are people with hangovers or something like that, like, like finding these weird patterns of things that cluster together um, and, and then, you know, I'm sure the, the sort of biased ones are like, uh, when I go look at these people's, you know, something like I look at their LinkedIn profiles and then I look at like photos of them and here's the salient characteristics they have based on like height or like gender or skin color. And they have got a poor LinkedIn profile. So basically these people are not good or something like that. I mean, I'm just wildly making something up, but finding those ways that things are related to things, uh, that'd be fun to like read how that actually occurs because you know to my mind it could be really simple you would just like open up the uh you know you'd find out this picture has blue in it (laughs) or like uh i have determined this curve on someone's face and this way that their cheeks are uh the pixels of their cheeks are occurring and therefore they're frowning um and then uh this this uh this picture of them holding a bottle is them from six hours ago. So therefore that's them in the picture. And, and I recognize that it's a Budvar label on it. And so therefore they were getting drunk and now they're unhappy. Um, and I don't know, there must be algorithms that deter- like open up a picture and like scan for the way pixels are arranged or something like that and uh, determine that stuff. And so it seems like at the bottom, it's just relatively simple, like algorithms people have come up with to find a frown or something like that. But I don't know. I'm sure I'm grossly simplifying it. Yeah. So the way I understand it, and I'd, I'd also love to have the time to go into the code, that is is exactly that. What's going on is people go through, so humans are going through a whole bunch of pictures, tagging the ones where someone's frowning, 
And so the algorithm over time just makes a bunch of assumptions about what a frown looks like and give it enough data and it will zero in on the characteristics of frown such that it will be able to, to recognize future occurrences of the pattern. Uh, so it's, um, it doesn't really understand unhappiness, but it just recognizes, hey, this is similar to 10 million other cases that have been positively associated with the concepts of frown. All right. Well, great. Well, that was that was. Uh, there's still some mysteries left, but I but I think we've, depending on your metaphor, Mike, we're we're a little further from the shadows. We we just we just got to keep going up the uh, the neck of the cave. One day one day we'll contemplate the pool in the sky or Prince something. Of the that's right. That's right. All right. Well, if 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 people want to, uh, I mean, you've you've got a lot of great uh, posts on a variety of topics. Like, what's 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 the blog and the Twitter that you have so people can delve into stuff. Sure. So I'm uh, D Wellington on Twitter, and pretty much everything flows through that. Uh, I do write a fair amount in a variety of different places. So the, the MOOCsoft corporate blog, that's MOOCsoft.com slash blog. And I try to keep it not completely sales pitchy, uh, make it at least an interesting read. I have my personal blog. It's at findthethread, all one word, dot postache.io, like a pistachio, but with an O in it. Uh, don't blame me. I didn't come up with that name. It's, uh, it's a really cool platform. Yeah, it's the one that plugs right into your Evernote. It's uh, it's Markdown from Evernote. It's just completely the simplest way I've found of doing blogging. So there's your little plug. I've done a recommendation like software defined talks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's this episode's computer corner. Uh, anyways, all right. Well, great. Well, thanks for being on. And uh, as as always, this has been software defined interviews. I guess maybe not as always as for the past four or five things. But uh, if you want to get the show notes for this, I forget which episode it is, but just go to softwaredefinedinterviews.com and uh, you can very quickly find it. And we've got a, a Slack channel you can join to uh, chat about this and the other the other podcasts. And uh, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes, which you'll have to look up yourselves. And you can uh, get a, a T-shirt or stickers, all sorts of stuff. Just go to softwaredefinedinterviews.com and... Uh, you will find all the answers you're searching for. There'll be there'll be a link to the actual show notes in the episode, but you just find the episode number and put it at the end of Software Defined Interviews and, and you'll have it. So thanks for being on and we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.